we're in 1 Corinthians 3, continuing in this sermon series, Messy Church. And as we come to 1 Corinthians 3, as you're flipping there, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles uh, in the lobby, or if you're on your phone, I'm going to trust you're actually in a Bible app, not uh, playing on some social media platform. But um, in 1 Corinthians 3, let me, let me just actually start by asking this question. You ever been publicly called out? You ever had that happen where you've been publicly called out? Maybe you haven't been publicly called out, but you've witnessed someone getting publicly called out. It tends to be pretty awkward. It can be pretty uncomfortable. Just thinking about that idea of being publicly called out, and it took me back to high school. Um, and I remember I was a sophomore in high school, in sophomore math. I don't remember what math class I was in. I remember we were just working on stuff uh, in the class. It was just kind of quiet. And another math teacher who happened to be one of the baseball coaches that I knew pretty well, and uh, he and I got along pretty well. There was a lot of verbal sparring that would happen between uh, he and I. He walked into the class, and he said something. And, of course, I said something back and kind of went back and forth for a minute. And then he was talking to the teacher, and he was walking out, and he said something to me. And then, you, you know, you have those moments where you say things, and as soon as it comes out, you're like, oh, man, I can't take that one back. I don't remember what I said, but I just knew, like, ah, I think that one was over the line. And so Mr. Sickmiller, that was his name, he's walking out of the classroom, and I say it, and he just stops. And he turned around. I was in the back corner of the class, and I'm waiting for him to just lay into me. Of course, at this point, the whole class is watching all of this unfold. And Mr. Sickmiller just walks quietly over uh, to my desk in the back corner. And we had one of those desks where you had the seat and then the little, uh, the, the, the little platform or part of the desk in front of it. And he just walked over. And, and I, I kid you not, he literally just picked it up with me in it and dumped me out of it. <laughs> onto the floor and then the desk kind of laying on top of me. So here I am on the floor looking up at not even my teacher, right? This guy just came and asked another teacher a question and I can remember so clearly he just stood over me and, 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 and it wasn't loud or abrasive, but it was incredibly firm. And he just looked at me and he said, McDonald, grow up, turn around and walked out. And of course, it's super uncomfortable. I'm like trying to pick up my desk and put myself back together, slinking into my chair. I'll just keep working on this problem. But that story really captures in a lot of ways what Paul is going to do with the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He is firmly and clearly, but I also might add quite graciously, going to tell them to grow up. One of the things that, that we've seen over the last number of weeks is, is he's addressing a number of different issues, division in the church, their immaturity, the, the, them finding identity in a host of other things, their gifts or their status and whatnot. But what Paul's going to drive them to is this fact that they belong to God and that they're called to mature in Christ. And so he's going to give this very firm corrective, this very firm rebuke to them because he wants them to understand the really pressing nature of what's going on in front of them. And so, loved ones, this is my caution, this is my preface up front, that we're going to get into a text this morning that at times is going to be hard, at times it's going to be sharp, it's going to be blunt, uh, it might feel confrontive or combative. But we would do well to remember in the midst of that, that this word that Paul gives to the Corinthian church is rooted in his love for the church. And it's something that the church needs to hear. And while that was true for them, it is also true for us. That this is rooted in love. It's coming from a place of love. 
and it's something that we need to hear. But to the best of our ability, we're going to try to capture the tone and, and, and the intensity and the serious and somber nature of what Paul is getting at here in 1 Corinthians 3. So let me read uh, the chapter. I'm going to read the whole of it here at the outset. would encourage you uh, to follow along, and then we'll just walk through this with the remainder of our time. Here's what Paul says. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And then Paul picks up on this metaphor of God's building and starting in chapter 10, gives another illustration uh, using the idea of a building. Verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, or which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done, If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you're God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God. Loved ones, let us go to the Lord and ask him to give us wisdom and insight to all that he has for us here uh, in this uh, really great, uh, though challenging text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And God, we ask that as we move through this text, as there is a sharp, uh, pointed, blunt, um, uh, really really just uh, raw components to this text, God, we pray that we would not shrink away from it. We pray that we would not run from it, but instead that we would lean into what you have for us. God, we would ask that your spirit would have the freedom to come and move and work in and amongst us to do the things that you long to do in and amongst your people. And so, God, we pray that you would accomplish uh, your will and your purpose, that your spirit would come and speak to us and challenge and correct and convict or encourage or exhort or whatever it is that, that you need to do in us. We ask that you would be doing that. And God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. God, I pray for my good friend, Spencer Brown, and for Center City Church. God, thank you for those brothers and sisters that that love you well. We pray that you'd be moving and working in that church. We pray that you would have your way in and amongst them. 
And God, we look forward uh, to you uh, continuing to work in and through them in the same way that we would ask that you would move and work in and through us. And so, Lord Jesus, come and have your way. Come and do the work that only you can do. God, we love you. We thank you. We pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is Pursuing Godly Maturity. Pursuing Godly Maturity, this idea of growing up, right? God calls us to maturity in and through the gospel is, is the main idea and what uh, God's word is going to push and press us towards uh, as we get into this text. Uh, and really, there's three primary aspects, three primary components that are going to unfold for us uh, as we move through chapter 3. And we'll spend a lot of our time here in this first one, uh, but, but make note of this uh, First of all, that godly maturity pursues identity in Jesus. Right, so this pursuit of godly maturity, uh, the first thing we see is that godly maturity pursues identity in Jesus. And if you look at the beginning of chapter 3, in fact, look at the first word, Paul says, but. Which means he's building off an argument that he's already been making. Things that he's already been uh, bringing into the conversation with respect to the Corinthians. So jump back here, uh, just a couple verses in chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 14 to give us a little bit of a frame for what Paul is talking about. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so part of what Paul is leaning into here is this argument and this belief that the Corinthians had that they were spiritual people. That was a big thing for them. We're so spiritual and we've got our act together and we're so gifted and we're so talented. And so Paul's contrasting the natural person versus the spiritual person. And one of the things that Paul will do multiple times in uh, this letter is he will lay out an argument. This is a spiritual person. This is a loving person. This is a righteous person. And then look what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. So Paul will lay it out and then he's going to go, hey, church, just in case you're wondering, that's not you. You don't look anything like that. You want to talk about being spiritual. And he's like, not only are you not spiritual, you're a baby. You are natural and fleshly and you're a baby. I mean, it's honestly a little bit savage the way that he comes about this, but it's, it's true. And he goes on to say, he's like, here's why I can't address you as spiritual. Like, I, I have to feed you with milk. You can't even eat solid food. And the proof of this is, is how you act. You're filled with jealousy and strife. And you're identifying yourself, not through the person of Jesus, but through, through Apollos or through Paul and all these other issues that begin to unfold from this. And really at its root, what Paul is getting at is that the people in Corinth were finding their identity, not in the person of Jesus, but in their gifts, in their status, in their knowledge, and all these other things. And so Paul's like, I'm going to go right at this. Hence this really terse and firm tone that we see throughout chapter 3. So godly maturity pursues identity in Jesus. Three things with respect to that idea in these first nine verses. Here's the first, look at verses 1 and 2. And it's this, that you and I, and I, and I try to frame these in ways that, that you and I can get our hands on these and can understand these, but uh, you and I were to seek to mature in Christ. We seek to mature in Christ. Now, I want, I want to be really clear that Paul's not calling into question their salvation. 
right? He, he doesn't say you're not a person, right? Or you're not a believer. He's just speaking about the nature of uh, the, the, the maturity of their salvation. Look what he says. But I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, right? You're in Christ, but man, you are so immature. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. See, he's not saying that they're not Christians. He's just saying, you're a Christian. You're just not nearly as far along as you think you are. Uh, You're far more immature than you'd like to believe. And he uses some really colorful and interesting metaphors to be able to drive that home. Right? And of course, this natural or fleshly thing is undermining this idea that they think that they're spiritual. And I don't know about you, I just couldn't think of any situation where being called a baby was a compliment. Um, maybe, maybe like, oh, your skin is as soft as a baby. But even then, I, I don't know, maybe that's even a slam as well. But, but no one calling you a baby or an infant evokes like, oh, thank you. Right? It's a shot. It's a dig. That's what he's saying to them. And what's happening here is that the Word of God has not changed, it has not transformed, it has not shaped the people of God. He's saying, you guys have lots of information. You have very little life change. You don't look any different. Now, think about this for a minute, loved ones. Because the Word of God has always, always, always shaped and formed the people of God. You can go all the way back to the garden. In the garden, the word of God is literally shaping and forming the people of God in creating Adam and Eve. But then as you move through the biblical story, when you get into the law, right, God's word is shaping and forming his people. When you get into the prophets through as God's messengers, shaping and forming God's people, Jesus himself, right, the word incarnate is what John tells us in John chapter one is shaping and forming the people of God. And what Paul is saying is what should be true of all believers. It's not happening for you guys. You are not being shaped. You are not being formed. You don't look any different And you think you're so mature, but you're an adult walking around with a sippy cup. That's what he's saying. I was thinking about that this week, right? I I have a 17-month-old in in our house, and so uh, it's not at all uncommon for Ellie to uh, walk around the house with her sippy cup or a bottle full of milk, and she'll just kind of walk around and slowly uh, work through that thing. And, I mean, that's like half of her diet. I mean, that girl drinks a ton of milk. But that's normal when you're 17 months to drink from a bottle or to drink from a sippy cup. Now, could you imagine for a moment if my um, middle school-aged twins walked through the door and my wife handed them a little bottle or a sippy cup? That's not cute. That's weird. And it's creepy. Why? Because you're supposed to grow up. Right? At some point in time, it's no longer cute to drink out of a sippy cup. At some point in time, it's not funny that you keep doing the same thing. And that's what Paul's telling the people here. He's like, this is the, the same for those who profess Jesus. Could drinking out of your spiritual sippy cup, like grow up. That's what he's saying. And spiritual maturity is evidenced by a growing desire to know more about Christ and a pursuit of him. And so it, it means more than I'm just content to show up to church occasionally. I'm content to read my Bible occasionally. I'm content to pray when I need God to do something, acting as if he's a genie uh, to come fix all my problems. Right? Spiritual maturity is, is I am going to pursue the person of Jesus because I love the person of Jesus. And then that begins to form and shape and change everything else within us. 
loved one are you seeking to mature in Christ? Godly maturity pursues identity in Jesus. First of all, we seek to mature in Christ. Secondly, I look at verse 3 and 4, we seek to live like Christ. So here's the evidence that you haven't matured is what Paul's telling them. Verse 3, for you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, you're not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So he's saying, here's the evidence that you are not mature. Um, Look at how you live. Look at you act like a little kid. You're full of jealousy and strife. And then Paul's actually going to connect that jealousy and strife uh, to what we see in verse 4, to competition and comparison. You you guys are actually more concerned with identifying with some other guy, Apollos or Paul or Cephas, whoever it is, than you are identifying with Jesus. I mean, that's problematic, isn't it? That I would be more concerned to identify with someone or something other than Christ. Now, in as much as it's easy for us to look at these guys and be like, you guys are idiots. The truth is, we do the same thing. Right? Whether it's Christian or not. So we want to identify with our favorite celebrity pastor. Or our favorite theologian. Or our favorite author. Or, or, or our favorite, you know, famous Christian person. Or, or maybe it's not even Christian. We, Christian, we want to identify with our favorite sports team. Or where we're from. Or our ethnicity. Or our nationality. Or whatever it is. It's all the same that, that this other thing becomes the identifying marker of who I am. Not Jesus. And whenever you get into that space, what it will inevitably lead you to is jealousy and strife. Because you're constantly having to compare and compete. My guy, my thing, my place, my whatever is better than yours. And here's the root issue that Paul's getting at. The competition, the comparison, the jealousy, the strife, all of it at its root. Here's what he's really saying is you're not satisfied with Jesus. He's not enough. That's why I got to go be connected to this guy or that thing or that place or whatever it may be. Because Jesus Christ isn't enough. Now, just saying that, doesn't that just, it kind of weirds me out just saying that. But that's what's happening here. That's why they found themselves in this place. They're not satisfied with Jesus and so I fight for, I'm jealous of the, the, the things that other people have. Loved ones, have you, ever, have you ever taken the time to just consider the absurdity of jealousy in the life of a believer? Here's what I mean by this. Think about it like this. You have the eternal sovereign God of the universe who created mankind from the dirt. And, and God, in this gracious gift of life, our response to him is we rebel against him, we reject him, we, we sin, we go and do our own thing. And now God could have, in his righteousness, easily just have crushed us and destroyed us and be like, I'm done. But instead, what God does is, no, I've got a different plan. I will send my son. And instead of crushing you because of your sin, I will crush my son because of your sin so that you can be restored back to me. And if that isn't crazy enough, then God gets really generous. And he's going to adopt us as sons and daughters. He's going to put the righteousness of Christ upon us. He's going to give us an eternal inheritance. And on and on and on we could go. Now think of just the absurdity of all of that. And as believers, we're like, why did God give him the gift of teaching and not me? Why do they have the gift of hospitality and I don't? 
Why, why do more people follow them or like them uh, than, than they do me? Why, why is their thing more successful than my thing? I mean, that's insanity that that's what we would reduce it down to. It's like a couple of billionaires complaining about pennies. The eternal riches that are ours, and yet how quickly we'll look at one another and go, well, why can't I have that? It's insanity. See, jealousy and strife come from a heart that's not satisfied in Christ. And it fails to see the fullness and his goodness in our lives. And so to live like Christ is to recognize the fullness of what Christ has done and what Christ has given to us. And so church, I'm just asking, asking you, can you see that? Can you see what God has done for you? Can you see what Christ has given to you? And then in light of that, can you be satisfied just in him? Can he be enough that I don't need all the other bennies and, and, and the, 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 the come-alongs and, and the extras with Jesus, but can he just be enough? And then let me go a little bit further. Can, can you celebrate that Jesus is, is enough when he does good things for other people and not for you? Can he still be enough in that? When he gives good gifts, when he gives opportunities, when he gives blessings to others, but not you, can he still be enough in that? Right? We seek to live like Christ. And then thirdly, look at verses 5 through 9. Right, this idea of godly maturity pursues identity. We seek to mature in Christ. We seek to live like Christ. Here's the third thing. We seek to have our identity rooted in Christ. Really four things that, that I mean, we could draw out more, but for the sake of time, there's four that we'll, uh, we'll engage here. Look at verse 5. Here's the question that he starts with. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Underline, circle, highlight, I don't care. Just mark that next word. He's saying they're servants. Right, part of our identity being rooted in Christ is understanding that we're all just servants. In fact, turn to the person next to, the, next to you and just tell them, you're a servant. You're a servant. It's what you are. Well, Mike, that's not very flattering. Well, I don't care about flattery. I'm just telling you that's what's true of all of us. This is who we are. We're servants. And this is who e- even these famous guys are. They're just servants. We would do well to remember that. Part of having our identity rooted in Jesus is understanding that all of us, we're servants. That's who we are. Secondly, look at verse 6 and 7. Right? Identity rooted in Jesus. Not only are we servants, um, but let's understand who's doing all the work here. Uh, verse 6 and 7 says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants, nor he who waters is anything, right? You're just servants, but only God who gives the growth. Part of our identity rooted in Jesus is understanding that God is the one who always gives growth. Always. Not sometimes, not most of the time, all the time. Now, yes, these guys played roles, right? They planted or they watered, um, but the growth comes from God. So listen to me, church, listen to me. You will never save anybody. You cannot sanctify anyone. Are are, are we clear on that? Like you can't do any of that. Now, some of you might hear that and be like, oh, that's so discouraging. No, no, that's so freeing. Could you imagine the burden and the weight of living under that? That if if you and I were responsible to actually save people, well, we'd be in a world of hurt, wouldn't we? Could you imagine how messy this thing would be if it was up to us to sanctify other people? That's, a whole, that's, a, that's, an, I, that's an awful thought, right? Um, but, but listen, 
You're responsible to plant. You're responsible to water, right? You, you cultivate. You play your role. <laughs> Growth, response, obedience, whatever. That department is run by God. And so just think about some of the implications of this for a minute, because this really is pretty profound. When you think about your spouse, when you think about your children or your parents, when you think about your family, when you think about your friends, you think about people you're discipling or people in your small group or whatever it may be, you plant, you water, you cultivate, but you are not responsible for their growth. God does that. And, and listen to me, because some of you really need to hear this. You need to know with confidence and certainty, whether it be in a negative sense or a positive sense. Maybe you think too much rides on you um, and, and that you're more important than you really are and that God actually needs you. Or maybe you've been crushed by the fact that you've got a wayward child or some issue with your spouse or whatever it is, um, when in reality it's their issue and their failure to repent or respond or whatever it is. But your identity, listen, 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 your identity is not in who you are, who you aren't, or what you accomplish or what you don't accomplish. It's not in what your spouse does or doesn't do. It's not what your kids do or uh, they don't do. It's not in whether or not you are successful. Your identity is solely rooted in the fact that you're a child of God, period. Are we clear on that? Because the implications of this are enormous. God produces the growth. And praise God that he produces the growth. But we're freed from any sense that we have to somehow manipulate this into happening when in reality we could never do that. Number three, look at verse eight, that we're united with one another, right? Continuing on this idea of identity rooted in Jesus, that we're united with each other. Paul says this, he who plants and he who waters are one, right? The servants are one. There's a unity that exists in what's going on here. That we're in this together, that we're united both in and through Jesus. Now, don't miss this. There's different gifts and different callings and different roles, but there's a unified purpose and a unified mission that exists in this. And so, can I just be really, really blunt um, that, that sometimes we do this thing in the church where, where we have this temptation, we have this tendency to let what we're passionate about, what, what we're gifted in, uh, really drive how I view the whole of ministry. And, and here's what I mean by this. So what I love, which usually is what you're gifted in and what you're good at, um, tends to be the thing that I want to see really emphasized in church or in ministry. So if you have the gift of evangelism, then for you, you're just, I mean, everything is evangelism, right? And you can't understand why uh, everyone else isn't sharing the gospel 16 times an hour and why, um, uh, like, how, you met your coworker six seconds ago and you haven't shared the gospel twice? Like, what's wrong with you, right? And just the sense that everything's about that. Or if you're, if you're a prayer warrior, wait, you wouldn't pray for like more than 10 minutes a day? Like, why, why wouldn't you pray? I just don't understand why you wouldn't pray. Or, or if you have the gift of hospitality, it's like, you don't have 47 people in your home every single week. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Like, who doesn't have 47 people in their home every week? Right? But here, here's what you have to understand. Okay, here's what you have to understand. Keep this in mind. That, that what you are gifted and passionate about is what God has equipped, listen to me, you to do. He has not given that gift to everybody. He gave that gift to you. He's probably given it to some other people, but not to all other people. And so in one sense, realizing what I'm passionate about, what I'm gifted in, is going to be the thing that I'm actually going to go do. And some other people are going to join me in that, but not everyone's going to join me in that because God's actually put some other gifts into other people. 
Right? There's different giftedness in different people. Like I, every single Sunday, man, I, I stand there uh, when, when we're worshiping in song and I just think to myself, praise God. Uh, praise God that other people can do that. Like I think of Johnny this morning, like that's like my worst nightmare in all of life. To stand in front of a group of people and have to sing and play an instrument, I'd be dead. Like I just, I'd be dead. I wouldn't have made it through. I'd be gone. You all have to just carry my dead lifeless body out of here. That's how that would go. Um, But I'm so thankful, right, that God gives other people giftedness. And I think about those who are like, some of you, man, you're so compassionate and merciful and kind. And people can be so abrasive and so obnoxious and just out of their mind ridiculous. And you want to just walk up and hug them and love them. And I'm like, no, yell at that person, right? But I don't have mercy and compassion and you do. And I'm so thankful that you do to be able to love obnoxious people. Someone needs to love them. Um, But here's the deal. In as much as I don't have that, there are things that I have that you don't have. And we need each other. And, and, and so, right, what you're gifted and, and passionate about, God has equipped you to do. But the other side of the sword is in thinking that your gift is better, more important, more needed, more necessary than other gifts. One of the things that just absolutely grieves me is people will sometimes say to me, well, you, you, have, you have the gift of teaching. That's an important gift. Maybe, uh, but it's not more important than any other gift. And I've heard things like this where people are like, well, I just have the gift of hospitality. Just? I don't, I don't think you understand like, what hospitality really is and does when, it, when it's done well and how profound that is. Well, I just have the gift of helps. Well, if you're helping me, that sure means an awful lot. Right? And so we, we, can't, we can't begrudge, we can't degrade even our own gifts in this. Right? We're all playing on the same team, same purpose, same mission, same goal. Amen. Yes, different gifts, yes, different roles, but same purpose. We're united with one another. And then make note of this also in uh, verse 8. Here's the, the fourth one around this uh, identity in Jesus. It's that God rewards labor. Let me read to you verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, you need to circle that word um, because we don't think this way very often. right? We live in capitalistic America, and what we love is the bottom line and results. And I'm not saying bottom lines and results are inherently bad or wrong. I'm just telling you, let's understand who we are and how we think. So in capitalistic America, what we care about is getting things done. I want to see that you got it done. Show me results. What have you done for me lately? That's the, that, that, that is the, the water we swim in and the water that we drink. And yet, I'm just showing you, loved ones, here's what God's word says. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. And here's where this becomes so incredibly profound. Because some of you will labor so faithfully and you will see no results. And so a lot of times what happens is you get discouraged, you get confused, you start questioning or you just quit. Well, God, God's not using me. I can't do this. I don't know. And, and what I want to push you towards is you, you're right. You, you don't know what God's actually doing. Let me illustrate this with a story. Some of you maybe have heard this. I've heard actually multiple accounts of this. So I'm not actually sure uh, what, what the true story is, although uh, you know, enough to, to have a pretty good idea. The story goes that there was a pastor in London, uh, in the UK, 
who uh, met a man who had recently moved to his church, and this man began to tell him how he had recently come to Saving Faith shortly after moving to uh, the UK. And so the pastor began to ask him, well, how'd that happen? He goes, well, I'm actually from Sydney, Australia. And while I was there, there was a guy uh, who, who shared the gospel with me and asked me some questions and it just began to kind of haunt me and uh, bother me. And I began to seek out other people. And then when I moved here, met some other people and came to saving faith in Jesus. And the pastor began over a variety of different times and interactions, began to run into other people. Right? Here's this guy in, in, in the UK and he keeps hearing about this guy in Sydney who's sharing the gospel with different people. And they're talking about how this was such a pivotal moment in, in their faith journey of coming to uh, saving faith in Jesus. Keep in mind, none of those people actually are repenting there with that guy in Sydney. And so as God would have it, a few years later, this pastor ended up heading to Sydney. And I don't know why, but he found himself in Sydney. And he thought, man, I want to see if that guy's still around. And so we began to search and began to ask questions and finally came across a guy who said, yeah, I know who he is. He's an older guy. He doesn't, he's not really out much, but, but I know where he lives. Let me take him to you. So the pastor went and sat down with the, this older gentleman and began to recount all these different stories of all these different people that he had met uh, and, and how his, his question of, of them and, the, and sharing the gospel with them and things of that nature were so pivotal in them coming to salvation. And so with tears running down this old man's cheeks, here's what he said to the pastor in response. He said, my story goes something like this. I was on an Australian warship and I lived a reprobate life. And in a crisis, I really hit the wall. And one of my colleagues led me to Jesus. And the change in my life was so amazing. And I was so grateful that God, to God that I promised I would share Jesus in simple witness every day as God would give me strength. Sometimes I was ill and I couldn't do it, but I made up for it other times. I wasn't paranoid about it, but I've done this for over 40 years. And in my retirement years, the best place was on George Street. There were hundreds of people there every day. And then listen to this next line. In 40 years of doing this, I've never heard of one single person coming to Jesus until today. See, God doesn't reward the results. God rewards the labor. So loved ones, I'm imploring you that you would throw yourself into the labor, into the investment, into giving yourself to that, irrespective of what you see. There's going to be all kinds of things on the other side of eternity go, oh, I had no idea. I had no idea. And praise God right, that God rewards the labor. So this first thing we see, right, godly maturity pursues identity in Jesus. These next two will come much quicker. There's a second thing we see. Godly maturity pursues eternal investment. Look at verses 10 through 17. Paul picks up on this metaphor of the building. Really three things with respect to this that I want us to see in these uh, next eight verses. In verse 10 and 11, Paul says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that Paul's talking about here is that, is that you and I are to build with care. That we build with care. And a couple of things I want to just point out real quick. First of all, Paul understands that he could not build at all if it, not, if it were not for the grace of God. Right? He's very clear that even for him, and if it wasn't for the grace of God, not, nothing's getting built. And secondly, I want you to notice that Paul has no issue with other people building on his work, right? There's nothing territorial about his approach to ministry. And so often we can kind of be like that. And yet Paul understands, man, we're on the same team. This is kingdom work. We're for it. But what he does caution the Corinthians very clearly about is that we're to build with care. 
That we're to pay careful attention, close attention to, to how we build and what we build with. That the foundation is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Paul probably has at uh, the beginning of chapter 2 in mind where he's talking about endeavoring to know Jesus and Him crucified and nothing else amongst you. But inasmuch as Paul is saying that to them, the truth is this admonition is for each of us. That you and I should take care how we build. My building upon Jesus is my work rooted in the gospel. Like the real gospel, the true gospel. And building with care means that we're concerned with the true gospel. That I, I'm not primarily concerned about moralism or behavior modification or some kind of external religion, but a transformation that comes through the person of Jesus. And so when we think about the gospel... When you think about the gospel, the, God's creation of us, our rebellion against God, uh, God choosing to put our wrath uh, for our sin upon Christ and not upon ourself. And when we believe by faith that God has done that for us and we trust in Jesus for salvation, then one of the things that Paul's actually going to tell the Corinthians in his next letter to them is that we're literally a new creature. That's what Paul tells the Ephesians that, right, that, that we're his workmanship. That we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so when we think about building with care, we have to be really cautious that we are not attempting to win people to a false gospel. And we have to be really careful that we're not attempting to manipulate God in our own lives with a false gospel. But reminded of the saving grace in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, nothing else. That's what we're building upon. And so we're saying, you've got to build with care. You've got to build with care. And secondly, we build with eternity in mind. Look at verse 12 through 15. It says, if anyone builds on the foundation, and then he talks about a host of different building materials, some good, some not as good, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So Paul's saying, listen, 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 church. God is going to test all of your work. All of you are going to be held accountable. All of you are going to be responsible. Now, this is not a judgment with respect to salvation. This is a judgment with respect to work and rewards. So look at what he goes on to say. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only is through fire. Right? We build with eternity in mind. And so while this is not with respect to salvation, these are some really sobering verses that we have to take serious what Paul is calling us to. Because what Paul is unpacking here is the very real possibility that you could waste your life. That's what he's saying. That you could waste your life. That you, you, All of your work could be burned up. None of it remain. That's what he's saying in verse 15. That the whole of your life could be wasted. Now, now think about that for a moment. Could you con, just consider this, that the whole of your existence, to be consumed in a moment only to re- realize and to reveal that everything that you have worked for, everything that you've invested in, everything that you've given yourself over to is utterly worthless. Could there be anything more depressing than that? 
I mean, we see this in, in small forms in our own lives, right? So like if you're working on a project at home, like something breaks and you got to repair something and, uh, and you get in there and, oh, it's going to take 20 minutes and like four hours later, you're like, I think I'm worse off than I was when I started this. Sometimes you feel like, man, I, I, I just wasted a day. You got a Word document up, computer goes down. Oh no, I didn't save that. I just wasted however long I put into that. Now, now, right, that's one thing to waste a few hours or maybe even waste a day. It's a whole other thing to waste the entirety of your life. And that's what Paul is cautioning the church here. He's saying, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. And, and, and really the way, I mean, this is kind of a, a, a simplistic understanding, a very basic understanding, but I've just found it to be really helpful for me that the way that I've thought about uh, these verses for, for a number of years is, is just think of your life as just one enormous wheelbarrow, okay? And then every single thing that you're doing, good or bad, right, you're just piling things in that wheelbarrow. And so every moment of your time, every dollar you've ever possessed, uh, every bit of your gifting, uh, the ways in which you've used that or not used that, all of it, right? And, and so every moment of your life, you're just piling things on, and then you wheel that thing up. And there's Jesus with his, you know, blowtorch 2000 or whatever, his divine blowtorch. He's like, all right, light it up. And everything in your wheelbarrow is exposed to the flames, right? And all the smoke and this raging inferno. Could you imagine? Could you imagine the smoke clears? You poke your head up over the edge of the wheelbarrow only to reveal that there's just maybe a couple of marbles rolling around on the bottom. And that the vast majority of your life was utterly wasted. See, that's what he's telling the church. Guys, don't, don't you get it? What you're doing, you, you're wasting your life. This shenanigans of finding your, your, your identity and your status and that you're better than the other person or, or trying to prove yourself. Like you're wasting your life. Not only is it foolish, it's a waste. He's saying don't waste your life. But build with eternity in mind. Okay, how? That's what he says in the next couple verses. Look at verse 16 and 17. Let me just give it to you up front because it might surprise you. But here's what Paul's saying in verse 16 and 17 is that you and I are to build the church. You might look at that and be like, wait, what are you talking about? Because a lot of times we get to verse 16 and 17, we, we do some really weird things with these verses. Uh, we often strip them of both the, the context that they're found in, in terms of 1 Corinthians 3, and then we'll highly individualize them. So like this was always the verse that was told to me as a kid that this is why you don't smoke and this is why you don't get tattoos. 1 Corinthians 3.16, well, your body's God's temple. That's true. Paul has no concern for smoking or tattoos in 1 Corinthians 3. And he's not talking about you and I as individuals. He's talking about the church collectively. In fact, think about the trajectory just today that we've seen, right? In the beginning of the chapter, you're immature. You're not as spiritual as you think you are. Um, and, and, then, and then he begins to, to, to press forward. Hey, here's, here, here's where your identity should be found, and here's where it should be rooted, and, and you want to build with care, and you want to build for eternity, and it's on the heels of that that then you get to this question, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And he's talking to the church, and he brings in the temple. Now, here's really what I think Paul's actually doing here, is he's, he's going to give a, a, an illustration to the people in Corinth that would have been an abomination to them. Could you imagine taking a sledgehammer, rolling into Jerusalem, and begin to whack away at the physical temple? I mean, it's horrifying to think about that. 
And Paul's saying, that's actually what you guys are doing when you treat one another the way that you do. When you tear one another down, when you, when, when you want to put your identity and in, in, in your gifts or your status or, or whatever it is, when, when you do all these silly shenanigans, it'd be no different than taking a sledgehammer and just walloping the temple, except it's actually far worse because the temple is just a bunch of rocks. You're walloping other people created in the image of God. And so really, Paul's coming full circle on his argument. Your jealousy and your strife are actually resulting in you destroying the temple or the church. And his rebuke is pushing them to love and to care for one another. And that the eternal investment is that we build God's church. Now, loved ones, can you see? Can you see how God is calling you to build the church? And I'm not talking about faith church. I don't care about faith. Well, I care about faith church, but I don't care about faith church in that sense. I care about God's church. Like, can you see how God is calling you to build the church, to care for, to love, to serve, to forgive, to extend grace, to, 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 to share and, and to, to come under and to serve alongside, to live in community, to elevate one another in their giftedness. All of that for the glory of Christ. That's what Paul's pushing them towards. And that's what you and I should be pushed towards. Godly maturity pursues eternal investment. Here's the final thing, just real quick. Uh, look at verses 18 through 23. Godly maturity pursues godly wisdom. Godly maturity pursues godly wisdom. Verse 18, he says this, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. That's actually kind of a funny verse. He's like, hey, if you think you're wise, you're not. And if you realize that you're not wise, then you're not wise. But either way, you're a fool. That's really what Paul's telling them. But some of us know that we're fools. Others of us are actually more foolish because we don't even know that we're fools. That's what he's saying in verse 18. See, godly maturity pursues godly wisdom. Uh, Just make note of this. Godly wisdom is not self-deceived. Godly wisdom doesn't deceive itself. It doesn't trick itself. It doesn't fool itself. It recognizes and realizes that I'm not actually as wise as I think I am. That I need other people speaking into my life. I mean, there's an irony for these people that what they thought was how wise they were. And Paul's saying all that has done is it served to expose that you're fools. Godly wisdom is not self-deceived. Now, sin will self-deceive. Sin will make us think that we're better than we are. Sin will make us think that we're more righteous than we are. Sin will make us think we don't need Jesus in the way that we really need Jesus. But godly wisdom is not self-deceived. Secondly, look at verse 21 through 23. Let me just read it. It says, So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. See, godly wisdom knows we belong to Christ. Godly wisdom understands that we're servants. Godly wisdom understands that we're not autonomous. I'm going to do my own thing, that I'm not on my own, that I belong to someone else. See, godly wisdom has a firm grasp on the reality that I belong to Jesus. And loved one, I'm asking you, do you know who you belong to? Godly maturity pursues godly wisdom. God calls us to maturity through the gospel. Church, I love you, but hear me when I say this. We need to grow up. We need to grow up. And some of you are grown up. You need to keep growing up. 
We pursue our identity in Jesus. We pursue an eternal investment. We pursue, by God's grace, godly wisdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you even when your word is hard or sharp, uh, when maybe there's a bite or something that's cutting with respect to it, that it's always, always, always rooted in your love and your kindness towards us. So God, I pray in this moment, just thinking about some of the harshness of where we've been and some, some of the just striking sense of what your word is calling us to, that we wouldn't shrink away from it, that we wouldn't run from it, that we wouldn't say, well, I'll have warm butterflies, so I'll pass. But God, that we lean into all that you have for us, that we'd hear the rebuke, we'd hear the correction, we'd hear the firm word. And God, if we need to repent, that we'd repent. If if we need to turn, that we'd turn. God, if we've been wasting our life, by God's grace, would you help us to quit wasting our life? God, that our identity wouldn't be found in some silly little trinket or what someone else thinks of us, but rooted in the fact that I'm a son or a daughter of yours. I wouldn't care about these other things. And God, would you help us to have your wisdom, to pursue godly wisdom. Oh God, would you give that to us? So Jesus, we ask that you would help us pursue godly maturity because we're pursuing you. We pray this in your name. Amen.